welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Bill W. I am an Episcopal priest living here in Austin, Texas. I've had the gift of recovery coming up on 50 years. Been at this thing for a pretty long time and uh, worked as a counselor, a family therapist along the way. And I guess the idea behind these podcasts is uh, finally without insurance companies and all that garbage to deal with, to kind of get down to the nitty gritty of what really lies at the base of recovery. And in that journey, uh, somebody who's been particularly helpful to me has been a man by the name of Robert A. Johnson. And so we've done a couple of his books before uh, on this uh, podcast series, and we're doing another one, actually finishing it up this time. So I'm not, I'm not going to try to bring you all up to date. So again, uh, in this episode, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit more than I usually do on these podcasts, but Johnson does a great job in his writing, and I think he expresses many of these thoughts better than I would be able to, to do. So got a lot of reading to do, and I'll make some comments along the way. I'm going to begin on page 89. If you've got a copy of his book, uh, there's a link to it in the show notes. And this section is titled The Paradox of Love and Power. Uh, two things that ought to be of interest to us addicts. He starts off saying, probably the most troublesome pair of opposites to reconcile is love and power. Our modern world is torn to shreds by this dichotomy, and one finds many more failures than successes in the attempt to reconcile them. It is not possible to live a human life without both of these elements. Power without love becomes brutal. Love without power is insipid and weak. Yet when two people get close to each other, there's generally an explosion in their lives. Most of the recrimination between quarreling lovers or spouses involves the collision of power and love, to give each its due and endure the paradoxical tension is the noblest of all tasks. It is only too easy to embrace one at the expense of the other, but this precludes the synthesis that is the only real answer. Failure invites a breaking apart Divorce, disunion, quarrel. A true paradox makes for a strong devotion and a mystical union powerful enough to endure the problems. Fanaticism, Johnson says, is always a sign that one has adopted one of a pair of opposites at the expense of the other. The high energy of fanaticism is a frantic effort to keep one half of the truth at bay while the other half takes control. This is always a brittle and unrelatable personality. This kind of righteousness depends on being right. We may want to hear what the other is saying, but be afraid when the balance of power starts to shift. The old equation is collapsing 
and you are sure that you will lose yourself if you, quote, give in. And how the ego works to keep the status quo. In this event, one must put some faith in transcendence and have the courage to sacrifice a point of view for the sake of the relationship. Ligare, the heart of the religious experience is to bond, repair, draw together, to make whole, to find that which is anterior comes before the split condition. Our future lies in this religious vision. In love, you know, there's that honeymoon period, uh, which is wonderful. And, you know, you get the same thing when you come into the program, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you come in uh, really kind of out of the pits, there, there's, there's that blissful state, but, and, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful, uh, romantic love, but it doesn't seem to last. It, it has to give way to a more human kind of love. And it does really boil down to love and power. Who's in control? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I knew nothing about this when, when I got married. Uh, so I'm almost sober 50 years. We, my wife and I have been married for about 47 uh, of those years and lived together uh, prior to that as well. Been together a long, long, long time. And... Uh, She's definitely much healthier than, than I am. Uh, certainly started out that way. When we would have a fight, and we would have fights, uh, my tendency was run. That's all I knew to do. If it isn't love, I'm out of here. You know. But she said, no, you got to stay and fight. Well, that was kind of new information for me. I didn't really know how to do relationships. And relationships require a give and a take, a moving uh, from one state, you know, where each has his or her own power and love into a, a third state where they're bringing that together. This is Johnson's whole point and creating something new. Uh, that's the paradox. It isn't an either or, it's a both and blending into a whole new kind of relationship. Johnson goes on, he says in this next episode, and he labels this one, the shadow as entree to paradox. He says, we, we began with the discussion of the shadow and we may well ask the question, what has paradox to do with the shadow? It has everything to do with it, for there can be no paradox. That sublime place of reconciliation until one has owned one's own shadow and drawn it up to a place of dignity and worth. To own one's own shadow is to prepare the ground for spiritual experience. Scripture and many stories tell us that the stuff of holiness is to be found in the most common places and events. This is a mythic statement 
that the pearl of great price is to be found in our everyday conflicts and tensions. No one is lacking in such experiences. Someone once said that Shakespeare could take the roof off any house and find an immortal drama. Take the roof off any human life and one will find the paradoxes that are the preparation for a religious or spiritual life, a vision of that which is greater than the personal. Conflict to paradox to revelation. That is the divine progression. From conflict, moving that then into paradox, and then moving from paradox into revelation. There's the three-stage process. And it takes staying in order for that to happen. All right? That's the growth in maturity. Johnson says, who has not fallen in love with someone where he or she shouldn't? To keep faith with this and with one's ethical and moral sense at the same time, set the stage for the self, capital S, God, set the stage for the self, something greater than one's small self. All right. And that's, that's really what this transformation process is about. It is moving towards a new level of consciousness. And that consciousness is in relationship to what Jung calls the self with a capital S, what we in the program might call God, what the Oxford group of people called the greater self, the, the self beyond uh, one's ego. All right, to be in re right relationship with that. That's everything. It's the purpose of life. It's, the, it's what gives meaning and purpose to life. Who does not spend much of his time debating whether to do the disciplined task or to goof off a bit longer and stay in a dreamy nowhere? Neither is holy, but exactly in the paradox between them lies the holy place. People come to the consulting room and lay out a collision of values with great embarrassment and agony. They want resolution, but would have something even greater if they would ask for the consciousness to bear the paradox. A friend went to her hour with Dr. Meyer in Zurich, who was famous for commenting with the single word, ya, ja, to anything he was told. In good English style, my friend bravely laid out the complexity of her life. She burst into tears and cried out that she could stand it no longer. Ya, ja, good, replied Dr. Meyer. Now something will happen. <laughs> this is stark medicine but it is correct for one who has the strength to bear it. Somebody else told me a story. Um, why a, a fellow went to uh, therapy for 10 years and uh, his question repeatedly was, why me, why me, why me? 
And he finally got it and he understood. And he told the therapist, why not me? <laughs> why am I so special? You know, why do I love drama so much? You know, stuff happens, stuff happens to everybody. And the stuff that happens is the material out of which we're going to build our lives. And we can fight it. And we can say, I want this and not that. Uh, but it's not going to work. You know, acceptance is the key. Here's a lovely quote Johnson gives us. He says, when the unstoppable bullet hits the impenetrable wall, we find the religious or spiritual experience. It is precisely here that one will grow. Jung once said, find out what a person fears most, and that is where he will develop next. The ego is fashioned like the metal between the hammer and the anvil. This is for the brave, and one does not easily find a moral or ethical nature strong enough for the process. Heroism could be redefined for our time as the ability to stand paradox. So in practicality, what do you do? Just to ask the question takes you off center for it makes you choose between doing and being. No glib solution will work. An early issue of Psychology Today shouted in bold letters on its cover, don't just do th something, stand there. Joking as this seems, this is Buddhism brought to our attention at a point where we badly need it. Paradox is brought to its next stage of development by a highly conscious waiting. The ego can do no more. It must wait for that which is greater than itself. To wait, to endure, uh, in another book, Johnson has a, a, an image of the ego boiling in a pot, a great big pot. I have this vision. It's out in the jungle, you know, uh, and they throw you in the pot and they're boiling you, you know, and it's the boiling, he says, in the oil of transformation. And that's what the ego is feeling. I can't endure this. I won't endure this. Well, are you ready for change? If I come out of the pot and I say, whew, well, I got out of that one. What Johnson says is life is going to send me back to the pot for further boiling in the oil of transformation. And I think this is uh, like step one. You know, the, the big book says something really strange. It says, you know, it's better for a person coming in who isn't really ready to uh, take this step, it's better for them to go out and do a little more controlled drinking, you know? Better, better to smash themselves up a little bit further 
if they're not able to, to, to make it over to the other side. Of course, the consequences uh, are ac actually relative, you know. I will never forget many, many years ago, I had two patients in treatment. I've told this story before, but it, to me, it, it was a, an eye-opening uh, experience to watch these guys. Uh, both guys in treatment came in, I think, about the same day. One was there because he killed four people in a DWI. Uh, and his lawyer said, it'd be a good idea, Fred, if you went to treatment. So Fred parks himself in treatment. And the other guy checks himself into treatment. Why? Because his father had been an alcoholic and he hated what alcoholism had done in his life and in his family. And he swore it would never affect his children. His drinking would never affect his children. He got drunk and he missed his son's birthday party. And he had a bottom uh, deeper than any uh, that I've ever, ever seen. And I know he was sober 30, 40 years last time I checked. You know, he got sober. The other guy didn't. He got to the bottom. You know, so, so there's, there's just no telling where it is, how deep it has to go. But every one of us in our own way has to get to that acceptance of, uh, of what, is, what does he say here? Hey, it must wait. The ego can do no more. It must wait for that which is greater than itself. It's almost like that little land between step one and step two came to believe that a power greater than myself could do for me what I can't do for myself. I mean, that's, that's, that's what he's talking about here. So now uh, Johnson uh, takes us to the answer. And he says, the answer is in a new state of consciousness. Oh, an awareness that simply wasn't possible before all of the suffering came in. And he uses the figure of the mandorla to describe it. So Johnson writes this. Thank God there is a concept to rescue us from the usual impasse. Happily, we have it in our own Christian culture and do not have to go to exotic places for a solution. This is the Mandorla, an idea from medieval Christianity that is all but unknown today. You will find it in any book on medieval theology, but one rarely finds it talked about at present. It is far too valuable a concept to have lost. Everyone knows what a mandala is, even though mandala is a Sanskrit term borrowed from India and Tibet. A mandala is a holy circle or bounded place that is a representation of wholeness. It's a circle with, with an image on uh, inside of the circle. We often find this image in the Tibetan tanka a picture generally of the Buddha with his many attributes, 
that hangs on the wall of a prayer room or temple as a reminder of the wholeness of life. Mandalas are devices that remind us of the unity with God and with all living things. In Tibet, a teacher often draws a mandala for his student and leaves him to meditate on this symbol for many years before he gives him the next step of instruction. The mandala is also found in the rose window in Gothic architecture, and it appears frequently as a healing symbol in Christian art. Mandalas turn up in dreams when the personality is especially fragmented and the dreamer needs this calming symbol. During a particularly taxing time in his life, Dr. Jung drew a mandala every morning to keep his sense of balance and proportion. The mandorla also has a healing effect, but its form is somewhat different. A mandorla is that almond-shaped segment that is made when two circles partly overlap. It is not by chance that mandorla is also the Italian word for almond. This symbol signifies nothing less than the overlap of the opposites that we have been investigating. Generally, the mandorla is described as the overlap of heaven and earth. There is not one of us who is not torn by the competing demands of heaven and earth. The mandorla instructs us how to engage in reconciliation. Now, if you're driving, uh, I don't want you to do this, but if you're not, I want you to, you know, so now he talks about the healing nature of this image, all right? says the mandorla is so important for our torn world that we will explore it in detail. We've been talking about pairs of opposites in our examination of the shadow. It has been the nature of our cultural life to set a good possibility against a bad one and banish the bad one so thoroughly that we lose track of its existence these banished elements make up our shadow, but they will not stay in exile forever. And about midlife, or sometimes earlier, they come back like Old Testament scapegoats returning from the desert. So we have these conflicts in our life and, and we label them good and bad. And uh, society teaches us to do that. Families teach us to do that. And anything that doesn't measure up to that gets thrown down in the basement, sent out into the wilderness, banished forever, okay? And that would be fine if it worked, but it doesn't work. The chains rattle, you know? The images start to ascend up the staircase, uh, particularly at night, they come to visit us, right? This is Marley's ghost. You know, we talked about this this earlier, and so how do I how do I live with these two conflicting uh, forces in my life? 
And Johnson's telling us the answer is to turn it into a paradox and to begin not to banish, but to blend. What can one do when the banished elements demand a day of reckoning? Then it is time for an understanding of the mandorla. The mandorla has a wonderfully healing and encouraging function. When one is tired or discouraged or so battered by life that one can no longer live in the tension of the opposites, the mandorla shows us what one may do. When the most Herculean efforts and the finest discipline no longer keep the painful contradictions of life at bay, we are all in need of the mandorla. It helps us transfer from a cultural life to a religious or spiritual life. Fortunately, this does not end our cultural life, for by now it is well enough established to survive on its own. The mandorla begins the healing of the split. The overlap generally is very tiny at first, only a sliver of a new moon. But it is a beginning. As time passes, the greater the overlap, the greater and more complete is the healing. The mandorla binds together that which was torn apart and made unwhole, unholy. It is the most profound religious experience we can have. The mandorla is the place of poetry. It is the duty of a true poet to take the fragmented world that we find ourselves in and to make unity of it. In the four quartets, T.S. Eliot writes, the fire and the rose are one. By overlapping the two elements of fire and a flower, he makes a mandorla. We are pleased to the depth of our soul to be told that the fire of transformation and the flower of rebirth are one and the same. All poetry is based upon the assertion that this is that. When the images overlap, we have a mystical statement of unity. We feel there is safety and sureness in our fractured world. And the poet has given us the gift of synthesis. Great poetry makes these leaps and unites the beauty and the terror of existence. It has the ability to surprise and shock, to remind us that there are links between the things we have always thought of as opposites. You know, in my own experience, um, I find two-way prayer to be uh, kind of a form of mandorla activity. I bring my earthly problems to a heavenly solution, a place where the two can exist together. It's not one over the other. 
it's it's bringing both together and finding a place of safety where things can be endured at either level nothing really changes but at the level of experience everything changes through the two-way prayer through the sitting and i'm not saying two-way prayer is the only way contemplative prayer it's, it's the same process sit for 20 minutes i want to get up enough of this i've had enough no sit sit endure persist right let let go of it don't don't fight it but don't deny it either just watch it and now let it go let it go it's a real place of safety and that's why prayer is is so vitally important you know i don't know that prayer changes god but prayer changes me you know and that is what's really really important all right next section is kind of um, about, um basically on really why do why do we do it so let me let me pick up here and he starts off with the i ching uh jung wrote uh, a preface to one of the um published versions of the i ching uh, he, he was a brilliant man and he studied many many different cultures and religions and things of that nature and and there was a letter uh from bill wilson uh, to Jung, in which he thanked him for his contribution uh, to the I Ching, uh, and, and said that, that it was very helpful to him and to many, many people in recovery, is peacemaking. I think the loveliest lines in our scripture, Johnson says, are, if the eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. The right eye sees this, the left eye sees that. But if one comes to the third eye, the single eye, all will be filled with light. Indian people put a spot of rouge in the center of the forehead to indicate that they are enlightened or on the way to enlightenment. In the system of chakras, that is the highest point attainable by human consciousness. One more chakra, the seventh exists but that is beyond our ordinary ability to experience. Encouraged by Christian practice, most Westerners invest the energy that might go into a mandorla in useless guilt. Guilt is a total waste of time and energy. He says, I used to tease my Baptist grandmother, telling her guilt was a sin. <laughs> She would get very angry since I was depriving her of her favorite pastime. She thought she was not doing her duty to Jesus if she were not wringing her hands in guilt at her or my sinful condition. Guilt creates nothing. Conscious work constructs a mandorla and is healing. The mandorla has no place for remorse. It asks conscious work of us, not self-indulgence. Guilt is also a cheap substitute for paradox. The energy consumed by guilt 
will be far better invested in the courageous act of looking at two sets of truths that have collided in our personality. Guilt is also arrogant because it means we have taken sides in an issue and are sure that we are right. While this one-sidedness may be part of the cultural process, it is severely detrimental to the religious life. To lose the power of confrontation is to lose one's chance at unity and to miss the healing power of the mandorla. I've been guilty of any number of things over the 30 years or so that I've been doing two-way prayer, but uh, it's, it's amazing that I can report that I've never been yelled at. I've never been guilted. I've never been shamed when I bring my problem to my two-way prayer, even, even if I missed my two-way prayer for two or three days. It isn't, well, you bad boy. I don't hear that. What I hear is, are you ready to come back? You know, it has to be loving, it has to be honest, it has to be pure, it has to be unselfish, or it isn't coming from God. So God is like, God sits in the middle of the mandorla uh, and seeks the balance, seeks to meet us in the balance of our paradoxes, our problems, our fears, our, 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 our guilt and our shame, all the stuff we want to throw down in the basement. If we will bring that to the process, if we'll bring that to the prayer, then rather than just feeling guilty about it, which does no good, it can have the power to transform me, all right? There's energy there. Same thing with my rage or my anger. If I will bring that to the prayer, it has the, 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 the intensity then uh, to maybe cut through and open my consciousness up to a whole new level of reality, all right? Not sending it down to the basement, not running away from it in fear, but facing it, enduring it, going through it, but not alone, not alone. Maybe that's the difference. And, and, and that's why it becomes the holy place in the middle. Last section here, I think, uh, the human dimension of the mandorla. Johnson says, one can view a human life as a mandorla and as the ground upon which the opposites find their reconciliation. In this way, every human being is a redeemer and Christ is the prototype for this human task. Every glance between a man and a woman is also a mandorla, a place where the great opposites of masculinity and femininity meet and honor one another. The mandorla is the divine container in which a new creation begins to form and germinate. Scripture never tires of speaking about courtship and marriage as the symbol for our reconciliation with the spirit. Tony Sussman, a Jungian analyst in London, and one of my early teachers once told me that sex is the one symbol in dreams that is always creative. Even if it occurs in violent form, 
in a dream. Still, it is speaking to us of reconciliation and creation. Such is the high place of union in the symbolic world. He cautions, however, this is always true inwardly, but cannot be presumed outwardly. So don't, 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 don't get your uh, layers uh, mixed up here. At the inward level, uh, it's union, it's joining, all right? It's, 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 it's body and spirit. It's, 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 uh, it's towards a wholeness and often compensating for that which I've pushed down into the basement. If we have a powerful mandorla experience, and what a joy it is, we can be sure it will be brief. This is important. We must then return to the world of dualities, of time and space, to continue our ordinary life. The shadow is created all over again, and a new experience of transformation is required. The great individuals in history have only momentary glimpses of wholeness, and they too return very quickly to the world of ego shadow confrontation. There is a Hindu proverb, anyone who thinks he is enlightened certainly is not. Our human situation divides us over and over again into ego shadow opposition, no matter where we start. This is probably why St. Augustine said, quote, to act is to sin, unquote. As long as we take our place in society, we will pay for it by bearing a shadow. And society will pay a general price with collective phenomena such as war, violence, and racism. This is why the religious or spiritual life speaks of another realm, heaven, and of the millennium as the culmination of the inner life. Culture and religion have different aims. To balance out our cultural uh, indoctrination, we need to do our shadow work on a daily basis. The first reward for this is that we diminish the shadow we impose onto others. We own our own stuff. We contribute less than to the general darkness of the world and do not add to the collective shadow that fuels war and strife. But the second result is that we prepare the way for the mandorla, that high vision of beauty and wholeness that is the great prize of human consciousness. The ancient alchemists understood this process. In alchemy, one goes through four stages of development. The negredo, in which one experiences the darkness and the depression. And we've all been through our negredo, uh, the darkness and the depression of addiction. The albedo, in which one sees the brightness of things. And that's the second stage. And, and, and many people in 12-step in recovery only go to this level, you know? And then it gets worn out. It doesn't seem to last. The, the rubedo, 
is the third where one discovers passion. I come back to life. And as I said in one of the earlier episodes, the passion almost always comes from below. That's where the energy lies. Not that I run out and, and, and act on it, but that I get in touch with it. You know, um, there, there's the two gods in, um, in, 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 uh, in the Greek uh, pantheon. Dionysius was, was, was the very powerful life-giving god, energy, uh, enthusiasm. He was, he was hot stuff, all right? And he, he was the god of wine. Uh, but not the god of drunkenness. Not the god that became Bacchus in, in, in the Roman pantheon. All right. And that was debauchery, you know. And what Johnson says elsewhere is uh, I always encourage my addict patients that what they were seeking in the alcohol was a good thing, but they're looking for it in the wrong places. All right. It's, it's not going to be able to deliver because it's false, all right? But what you were seeking, he affirms that what we're seeking is life. What we're seeking is, is fun. What we're seeking is joy. What we're seeking is wholeness. <clears throat> and if you'll think about your addiction, that's one of the false gifts it gives you momentarily momentarily i'm all right i know towards the end of my drinking i wasn't drinking to have fun i was drinking to not feel and it delivered that you know i didn't have to feel and part of recovery is enduring and going through the feelings all right uh and not running away the fine and finally he says the citrino where one appreciates the goldenness of life. The goldenness of life. And we'll talk about this in the next episode, that in the shadow lies the gold. And our job is how to extract it from the shadow. All right? That it, it ultimately bears a gift. And how do we go about extracting that gift from the darkness? How do we take the light out of the darkness, all right, without banning it, running away from it? After all, this is called a full-color mandorla. This is the pavanis, the peacock's tail that contains all the preceding hues. One cannot stop this process until one has brought it to the pavanis, the concert of colors that contains everything. I think these are the moments, the moments of real transformation, of transcendence, where uh, there's nothing but gratitude for everything that's been an acceptance of, of it all and meeting God in the middle of the seesaw. Wrongly done, he says, the many colors of life produce a grayness and all the colors neutralize each other into a dull monotony. Correctly done, the Pavanis comes 
and all the colors of life make a magnificent and rich pattern. The mandorla is not the place of neutrality or compromise. It is the place of the peacock's tail and rainbows. Jung uh, sends us on a spiritual journey. Uh, and, and, and the journey is going inside. And inside, we're all going to find our shadows. And most of us want to run from it, hide from it, uh, escape it in some way, shape, or form. And Jung's uh, advice is to go through it. And I think that's recovery's advice as well. Um, I, I think we are really saying the very same thing here, um, that, that uh, we can be grateful uh, for, for all of the experiences of our life, that each one of us is kind of an experiment, you know? Uh, are we going to grow in consciousness? Are we going to expand in consciousness? Or are, are we going to just grow to a certain level? and try to stay there. Well, I think you might be able to not drink or not drug at that level, but you're not gonna really gain the, the, the full gifts that uh, sobriety really is offering to us, but it offers it, us, offers it to us uh, only if we will go through the trials, stay with it, endure, persist, and be transformed. So uh, I think that closes the, the book for, uh, for Johnson, but I would feel bad if I were to end the series here. So I'm trying to get in touch with uh, two or three of my friends who I know are doing shadow work and, and we'll do one more uh, episode on, on this series and maybe uh, share with, with you all uh, how we approach it, how we do it, what it's done for us and give you some, uh, some um, advice on getting started with the process. So uh, I hope this uh, episode was helpful. I hope the series is opening you up uh, to uh, uh, having the courage to, to go inside and to take a look at, at the stuff that's there. Uh, it's the thing that's gonna change you. So uh, not, not to be so afraid of it. Okay. Uh, Again, uh, thank you for listening. God bless and uh, keep digging and keep coming back. Mm -hmm.